It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski next on Baseball HQ Radio. Swung on, high fly ball to left center should do it. There's Foster, and the 1976 World's Championship belongs to the Cincinnati Reds. In the ninth inning, the Yankees are out in order as the Reds in this fourth game in sweeping. Billy Martin's New York Yankees do it decisively. Four in the ninth inning and a 7-2 final score. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April the 1st. No fooling, it's show number 21 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski about why he moved from Tout National League to the Mixed League, his preferences and habits in drafting, his studs and duds for 2014, and more. We'll also have a commentary from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield will talk about reliability ratings. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The games are underway. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, the games that count really started a couple of weeks back in Australia. Yes, the games that count really started a couple of weeks ago, back in Australia. But really, weren't we all waiting for Sunday night and then the big slate of games on Monday? So nothing more needs to be said. Baseball is back. Good luck with your leagues wherever you are and however you play. As regular listeners know, I'm fortunate enough to play in the Tout Wars Mixed League Auction. And at this year's draft, the player to my immediate right was Scott Pianowski of Yahoo Sports. And since we seem to be bidding against each other for about half the players, I thought it would be fun to get him on the show. So for the first time ever, Scott Pianowski, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. Scott, when we have a new guest, I always like to lay some foundations for our listeners. And that usually starts for me. I'm curious about your history in the game. When did you start playing fantasy baseball? My first season was 1988. Uh, I grew up in New England, a Red Sox fan, grew up reading the, the Boston Globe and Peter Gammon, so I was already interested in baseball and numbers. And then late 80s, I, I heard about this fantasy thing, this rotisserie. Rotisserie was really the word that people would use. People didn't call it fantasy baseball back there. It was rotisserie baseball. And the guys who invented the game put out a book. I, I think I'd seen that or, or read an article somewhere. So got some of my baseball friends together. I said, let's, let's try this. We, we did a draft. We actually did a 4x5 draft. We, we took the original 4x4 rules and we added strikeouts for pitchers. I have no idea why we did that, but we did. And I was the commissioner. I kept the stats on a Smith Corona word processor. It was the worst way to run a league. I had to do everything by hand. But, again, you know, the Internet wasn't here yet, and that's how you did things back then. So 88 was my first year, and I miraculously won that season. I don't really know much about the season. I don't remember much. I remember I think Greenwell and Mattingly were two of my players. But then in the early 90s, uh, that league kind of faded out a little bit. In 1991, somebody started a league, a friend of mine named Larry. I missed that league in 91, but I joined it in 92. Keeper league, uh, mixed league, uh, draft, 14 owners. And pretty much the same group has been together. We just had our draft a week after Tout Wars. And so that league goes from 1991 to the current. We've probably retained about 90% of the owners. That's become my home league and, and the league I'm actually very proud of. It's interesting that leagues that manage to retain that core have the kind of longevity that a lot of leagues don't, especially uh, leagues that form sort of anonymously where you just go to Yahoo or ESPN or whatever and sign up and you take your chances with whoever you end up with. It's a different experience, isn't it, when you have the same guys and they become friends if they weren't already friends. It's really good for league cohesion and for league longevity. Completely agree. And I think that if you're going to have a keeper league that works, this league is a keeper league. You need to have people who know each other, who have a stake in each other outside of the game. You need to have a league where you think you have most of the people coming back. And if you are going to play in a league, a public league, an anonymous league, I think those leagues are better served as one-and-done leagues just because you don't know who's coming back next year. And you know, we, we talked a little bit before we, we went on the air today about how you know, dump trades can really ruin a keeper league. And you, you have that element. If people are don't care about the next season or maybe they're not coming back, it's just the quickest way to torpedo a keeper league. So 
if people are starting leagues where you don't, maybe people don't know each other that well, I think the one-and-done or, or the redraft league, as they call them, might be the better way to go. But I think our keeper league that I'm talking about is the, the Chelmsford League, as it is Chelmsford, Massachusetts. I think it's worked for us because you know, we're friends. We're invested in each other outside of the game. It's a great way to get together. You know, People have moved all over the country, have gotten married, had kids. And actually, a lot of us now are actually sharing teams. When we first started doing it, everybody had their own team. But I actually have a co-owner in that league. A couple other people have done the same thing. It's going to cycle of life gets in a different path. But again, because we're ret- retaining so many guys, I think that speaks to why that, the league has lasted and been very successful. I'm curious about your opinion on the number of keepers that makes the most sense. The league I'm in, my home league in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan in Canada, the Regina Rotisserie Baseball League, has, like yours, it's been going since the early 90s. We have a core five or six guys who, who you can just count on year in and year out and some other guys who've been around now for a few years and they're starting to become part of the core. So it's all good from that perspective. But when you bring in the new players and they look at the keeper situation, our league allows you to keep 15 guys and 10 farm players. And that means when you come into the league, you look around and you go, I don't have a chance. You know, I can see this is going to be a four- or five-year process to have any chance of getting anybody because every decent player at a good price is not going to be available in the auction. And even if they are available in the auction, my $260 wallet is not as good as somebody else's $150 wallet because he's already got a bunch of good keepers. What do you think is a really optimal number of keepers to allow? I mean, obviously that's up to the discretion of how a league feels. The way we've done it in this particular league is I think you can keep seven guys and you can't it's a draft league. You can't keep anybody drafted in the first five rounds. So nobody's keeping Miguel Cabrera. Nobody's keeping Clayton Kershaw. Those guys aren't uh, you know aren't uh, locked on somebody's roster for a while. What will happen is somebody will click late on a player. Albert Pujols was drafted I think in the last round when his rookie season came up and Mike Trout was a late-round keeper. Uh, we end up escalating the price every year, but, but Trout's going to be out of the draft pool for a while. I, I think maybe next year he goes back in, but he's somebody who was drafted once and kept for a while. But because we don't have the, the top five rounds, which is usually about 70 players, because those guys are not eligible to be kept, uh, it, it, I think it makes the draft more accessible to a new owner. And also something that we do in that league is we have disincentives towards dumping where if you come in last in our league you need to draft second to last in the following season for every round we don't snake so if people want to you know, give up the current season and look towards the, the new year they have to think about where their draft slot's going to be because it's predicated on where they come in the standings and we also have uh, middle of the year we have a, a trade deadline maybe 12 weeks into the season where you can't trade anybody who's in the last year of their contract so if you did have Miguel Cabrera if you wanted to sell him and, and break your team up and get ready for next year, you'd have to do it in the first 12 weeks. So you can't make some fire sale, give everything up, deal in August, because those guys with the expiring contracts are no longer in play. Something else, Scott, you mentioned about your league and uh, and the longevity that comes from having the same guys in it every year is uh, has to do with the idea of guys playing in multiple leagues. Uh, our league really is very discouraging of applicants who come in and say, and they think it's a plus, I believe, that they play in, you know, five Yahoo leagues, four ESPN leagues. They've got a, they've got a, a NFBC uh, team or two. They play the, one of the challenge games and so forth. And I believe that what they're saying to us is, I'm a really um, committed, interested fantasy player. But to us, what we hear is, if I'm ninth in June... I'm going to walk away from this league and go look somewhere else. Right, that's something you have to factor in. I mean, and, and I guess the biggest flight risk in this league might be me because I'm certainly in the most leagues of, of any people in this league. I think there may be owners in this league are only in one league or two leagues. I think there's probably a lot of people like that, and, and I'm the guy who's who's got my attention's kind of fractured. That's one reason why I went to a co-owner. But but again, it comes back to us being friends, being invested in each other's lives in other ways other than baseball. I think it's gotten to the point where most people, we, we have a conscience where the survival of the league, what's good for the league, a lot of times comes ahead of what people might be motivated by. So I, I, think, I think we're lucky in that sense because we were all friends beforehand. I have met some people from the league, but for the most part it's people I knew outside of baseball and outside of fantasy or rotisserie. So I, I think we're fortunate in that way. And, and that's, you know, to me that, that's the the ultimate essence of a league. You know, I, I initially started it with friends, uh, and, and it's great that 
through fantasy baseball. I've got to meet people. Uh, you know, go to Tout Wars in the industry. You meet, see so many people that you like seeing, and that year is, is my favorite weekend of the year. But I think again, our league comes back to the fact that we're all friends outside of baseball. We all had something in common, or you know, something linking us together before we even started playing this game. You mentioned that uh, time and the tides br- drift people apart. You have. Uh... For these friends of yours, uh, fellow players in your league who are all over the place, do you all go back home like the Swallows to Capistrano for your drafters? Are some people doing it over the phone? We do. It's great. Uh, the majority of our league will be in, in Larry Holt's boardroom and uh, try to get there early to pick out the seat you want. But uh, and, it, and it's changed over the years. We used to have stickers on a board. Now we have a, a Google spreadsheet that's uh, on the wall and you know, we, we've more people have computers now it used to be everybody was you know by hand a lot of times literally by hand people still a couple of owners who you see their cheat sheet and, and it's a piece of paper with a with a handwritten list of you know their third baseman their outfielders but i don't know patrick there's something about and look i work for yahoo and i, and I hope people go to yahoo and, and play fantasy and, and i think our draft room online is great i think our auction line on room is great and, and i don't want to take away from that but to me, and again, I guess the way I was raised, there's nothing like getting in that room and seeing everybody and you know, people coming in and you know, they have their refreshments with them and, and you know, they have their, their books or, or their notebook or whatever it is that they're going to work off. And we're all in a room looking down and trying to figure it out, at, you know, playing poker together. I, I just love that feeling. Yeah, the poker analogy is pretty good. There's nothing like being at the table. You know, playing online can be fun, I guess, but you you also miss out on all the opportunity to do kibitzing and making fun of each other and and cracking wise. And having the fun, the social fun aspect of the draft is something that a lot of people, I think, overlook and and should try to find more aggressively because it really makes the whole experience that much more enjoyable. Completely agree. And to anybody who's listening who is exclusively an online player, again, not in any way am I knocking that. But, you know, maybe see if there's a a hometown league you can get. There's always always leagues that are looking for people. Just try, if you haven't haven't gone outside that comfort zone, just try once to see if you can get in a league in person and just see how how it's different. Because I think that experience is something that every fantasy player needs to try. You know, you mentioned uh, back in the day, uh, anybody who's pre-computer in the fantasy baseball uh, experience will remember waiting for the paper to come out with the week's stats, and then somebody would go and do it manually by hand first, and then later on they'd use an Excel or Lotus One Two Three spreadsheet. If I'm dating myself even further back, we had a guy when I first got in the league. Our league commissioner did the stats by hand, and he did them while he was driving down the road. Uh, this, the grid roads in Saskatchewan, they're like off-highway roads because he delivered um, tractor parts all over the province. And he killed time while he was driving these flat, straight roads by literally had a, a clipboard and he'd do the stats by hand with a pencil and paper while he was driving, mind you, at 65 miles an hour. I drove with him once while he was doing it, and how he survived it, I, I have no idea. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, how'd you navigate the journey from a guy playing fantasy baseball to a guy writing about fantasy baseball? Well, again, I, I talked earlier about being a baseball fan from early on and, and how Peter Gammons was somebody, almost like a hero of mine and a bunch of my friends. We all, we all wanted to be Peter Gammons. We wanted to talk about baseball and talk about music. And I think that had a lot to do with why I ended up being a newspaper reporter out of college and working for the Province Journal for a while. I, I was actually in the press box the, the night the Red Sox traded Jeff Bagwell, who was a light-hitting, uh, good average, low-power uh, bat, double-A, Beehive Stadium, killing his power. They decided to move him for Larry Anderson, a relief pitcher who was about 100 years old. And so I, you know, there I am, newspapers, loved it. But you know, the industry started to dry up a little bit. I think I saw the writing on the wall in the, in the mid to late 90s I got to do something else. And I started working for some websites and a bunch of different ones, small ones that maybe people wouldn't have heard of you know, before I got lucky enough to get to Yahoo in the 2000s. But you know, I was on the internet early. I was on Prodigy, tying up my phone line with a modem, and this podcast turning into one big reminiscing trip. But you know, that's what this has been my life of, of you know baseball and fake baseball. And I started getting fantasy really big and. People will tell you in the early years, I was probably the guy putting in the most time. And that's back when it really, really rewarded you because you couldn't go to a website like Baseball HQ and have everything spelled out for you. I mean, you had to hunt for your information. But anyway, when I was looking to tra- to make a transfer from, okay, newspaper industry might not be here the way I know it, 
I need to do something else. I, I got in on the internet, started working for some small websites, doing fantasy baseball, fantasy football, and that turned into a job with RotoWire in the in the late 1990s, around 2000, and then uh, FantasyGuru.com, a, a really respected football site, I wrote for for a while, and then eventually Yahoo. Uh, it may be an offer, which I was not going to refuse in 2008, and I've been there since. And, you know, you know, Patrick, you and I going back as far as we do, uh, how much this game has changed, but, you know, the Internet really just exploded everything for information, and, and there's so much need for people need daily information now with daily games have kind of kicked in. But uh, the, the Internet has been great for fantasy, and I've been happy to have a part of it. You raise an interesting point about the accessibility of information. When I started in my first uh, Roto League, I worked for a newspaper too, and one of the advantages I had, we held the draft at the newspaper office, and every so often I could s- sneak out and uh, run down the hallway to the newsroom, log on to the uh, Associated Press, Canadian Press, and find out what was going on in baseball, which nobody else could do. Now, of course, that information advantage has been largely eroded or, or completely eliminated because everybody, as you say, has Wi-Fi, and everybody can just log on and get the information from any one of a number of sources where do you think is well first of all let me ask you a two-part question is there any kind of information edge out there anymore at all if there is what is it and if there's not where can we find our next advantage that is an outstanding question and and i wish i had an answer that was worthy of how great of a question that is i think part of what we do now is we figure out we have all this new information all this new data and we're going to have a lot more of it with what mlb uh MLB Network, I'm sorry, Major League Baseball announced at the Sloan Conference, I know you've talked about this on this program, of, of all these things they're going to do with cameras, spin rates, and, and it's really exciting. But to me, I think it's a case of, and this is going to be a vague answer, but now we have all this information. The question is, how are we incorporating into our fantasy leagues? And, and, and are people maybe counting something or weighing something he- more heavily than they should? Do we... Uh, now, that, um, Gene McCaffrey said a great, great quote in his book, and again, I know he's a guest of yours regularly here, and, and Gene's a friend of mine and, and somebody I greatly respect. He wrote about four or five years ago in his annual, and he said, he said that, okay, ten years ago we had no idea what batting average balls in play meant, and now some people talk about like the only thing that matters. And he goes, I like that, because it takes people who uh, are intelligent otherwise, it stops them from thinking things through. And I think that's part, and again, this, I, this is, I'm speaking very generally and vaguely here, but I think sometimes with this new information era, I think sometimes you see people get so married to stats and so married to acronyms that they're missing some of the common sense that is out there, some of the value that is out there, because maybe a player doesn't, maybe Adam Jones is underrated in some fantasy leagues, so some people say, oh my God, he, he doesn't walk a lot. And again, I go back to Gene, I know you, you and Gene talked about, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe he's controlling his at-bats and he doesn't need a bunch of walks to prove that he has a good batting eye or good plate discipline. But I think, to me, it's a case of, okay, we have all this information. How are people using it and incorporating it? And maybe are there some things that people are, are taking a little bit too seriously? Or I think, I think walk rate is a great example. Again, I point to the work Gene's done. I point to the work that you have done. I point to the work my friend Michael Salfino has done on this thing. And I, it just goes to show you that even if we have more data, it doesn't mean we're necessarily using it in the most optimum way. So where do we get our next advantage? I've heard people say game theory. I've heard people say you got to understand uh, the psychology of auctions, those kind of things. Do you think those areas have any promise? They could. Uh, you know, I think, to me, I think sometimes the whole March part, you know, February and March, we spend so much time on player evaluation. And I think a huge part of fantasy success, and nobody's done this better than Larry Schechter, who you know, just wrote a book on fantasy baseball? He's been he's won Tout Wars so many times. Or you know, I'm, I'm sick of eating his sandwich at Foley's every year because you know, Larry gets to win, gets to put out his sandwich. But I think he understands that you're trying to leverage a marketplace and understanding how your opponents think and how they may rank players and how they may have certain ebb and flow or, or preferences at the table is greatly important. I, I think it, it might be more important than understanding how good a player is. Is how do my opponents feel about this guy? And I try, it's not always easy with who you're playing with. You may not know the the league that you're in. In my hometown league, it's helped me greatly because I know these owners. We've been in the same league together for such a long time. But I think sometimes if you can, getting to know what you're up, I mean, you're talking about poker, right? The idea is you're playing the man, not the cards. To me, the baseball players are the cards. The other owners are the other poker players. And I think you want to spend as much time as possible getting a sense of how does my room think and where, where is the sweet spot here? How can I leverage that to advantage for me? 
you spent many years in Tout Wars playing in the National League Mono League format, but this year you asked to be switched to the Mixed League. And I was curious about that because usually experts want to go in the other direction. I think there's a perception that the mixed leagues are harder. I mean, sorry, the mono leagues are harder. There's a perception that the mono leagues are harder and therefore more prestigious to win. Why did you want to go from the mono league to the mixed league? I think the mixed league is just the format I enjoy more because I like the entire player pool being opened up to me. Now, granted, I mean, fourth and fifth outfielders aren't going to matter in a 15 15- about all 30 teams. I need to know about both leagues. And I'm also you know, getting a little bit out of my comfort zone because there's a lot of people in the mixed league I'm not that familiar with. So we're in the National League. I, I knew the owners pretty well. Granted, I didn't take advantage of that as well as I, I would have liked to. I've come in second a couple times in the National League only league in tout. I've never won it. But maybe it's because you know, my readers, for the most part, are mixed league players. And, and again, I, I like having all 30 teams in play. And I like the free agent acquisition period, just being a little bit more interesting. I think you can fix a mixed league team that maybe you didn't auction well, you got some bad luck early. I think those teams have more of a chance to be fixed or repaired, where if you have a couple of injuries in AL only or NL only, you're just about shot. I I just feel it, to me, it's more playable format. It's more accessible to the readers. It has been a format I've done better in, but I I don't want to be tied to, okay, I'll go where I'm successful. I, I just, I like having the entire major leagues in play and, and because we're going 15 owners deep it's not like we're picking up all-stars off the way for a while i mean i felt like we picked the bone pretty clear pretty clean at tout wars mixed and granted players new new value is going to come in the league every year we know that but to me it's a more playable game more accessible game and i like all 30 teams in play yeah to me it comes down to the differences and i play both formats and to me the the, the big difference is in a mono league it's more about knowing the players and in a mixed league, it's more about knowing the game. There's a lot more opportunities at the auction table, and as you said, during the year, to make adjustments on the fly, to figure out what's going on in in terms of the game rather than in terms of the players being rostered. Because in mixed, as you said, you've got a lot of choices. Let's face it. I mean, there's we need barely half of the outfielders who are going to be playing in the major leagues this year. So you don't have to worry that you're going to be stuck with some bench-ending fifth outfielder who's going to have a, a 290 on-base percentage. That's just not going to be a realistic expectation in a mixed league. However, uh, you do need to have a much better understanding of how to manipulate things during the year and at the table. Patrick, I think that's an outstanding point, and I think it probably speaks to what I think I'm better at as a fantasy player. I think I'm, I've had people say to me, you know, I think you draft okay, but I think you really do a good job during the season of making decisions, of, of knowing when to churn and when not to churn, and just the maintenance that comes during the year, both in baseball and football. I've had people say that to me you know, unsolicited, and I thought, okay, that's interesting. I, I need to do a better job on draft day. But I, So maybe this whole idea of wanting to be in mix speaks to the, that skill set differential that you talked about, and that's maybe something I'm better at. I, again, I, I think you really outlined that very well. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, at the tout mix draft this year, it seemed three-quarters of the time I was bidding against somebody, it was you. We were sitting side by side, and I'm curious now that uh, the dust has settled, I'm curious what your strategy was going into the draft, because I want to see how closely it jibes with mine. Well, I certainly wanted to get OBP is the category in um, tout this year, in all the tout leagues, and batting averages has been laid to rest, taken behind the woodshed and we're using on-base percentage. And while I don't think it had a crazy impact on how I valued the players, I do think it had an impact on how I wanted to construct my roster. And I I thought, okay, early on, I would like to get a couple of high OBP guys, thinking that this will free me up, that if I want to get a Chris Carter, if I want to get a Rajai Davis, a guy guy who's maybe a speed or power play, but isn't going to be a great on-base guy, that's not going to be a big deal if I've already set a foundation in on-base percentage. So... I looked at some players, and I wasn't going to go crazy on these guys. It's not like I'm going to get them at any cost. But Joe Maurer was a target of mine who you ended up getting for $27. What a great play he is this year. We're in an on-base percentage league. Now he's a first baseman, but he qualifies a catcher. You think he should play all year. Yeah, he might only hit 10, 12 home runs. I think he'll probably be double digits, but low in the double digits there. But you know, obviously he's won three batting titles. He gets on base at a very high clip. I thought he was an interesting guy to look at, and I considered him a pseudo-target. wasn't going to run through the wall for him. Uh, we got in a bidding war over him. You got him at 27, which I think still is a under-par price, and I regret going 28. I think you've since told me that you would have gone 29. So I think that would have probably st- – I, I, I want two bucks from you, Patrick. I'm bidding 28 now, and I'll hear your 29 bid, and we'll take $2 off your fab. But 
Uh, <laughs> Joey Votto was one of my early purchases, uh, who's obviously an on-base percentage overlord. I don't care if you don't want to swing at, swing at the borderline pitches, Joey, just get the first base, get me in my walk, I'll take that. Uh, one of my early buys was Votto. One of my early buys was Prince Fielder. I got Sinsu Chu later in, in the auction. 32 bucks is not by any means a discount. I think it's probably a par price. I might have even slightly overpaid for him. But when I had those guys in line, I felt like later on, okay, Josh Reddick, I can handle that. Okay, Andrelton Simmons, I can handle that. Uh, some of these guys who may not have Johnny Peralta, I don't know how great his OVP will be. Because I got the early bank of guys good in that category, I thought maybe it gave me a little bit more flexibility with the construction of my offense. Well, I guess we did have pretty much exactly the same strategy. Uh, Ray Murphy, before, just before Tout came out with an uh, explanation of his strategy at the Tout Mixed Draft, and he said his strategy was to try to get that really super on-base percentage floor, which you can do much more easily in a straight draft, because he reached for Votto, he reached for Chu, and he reached for Maurer. And uh, people at the table said, you're reaching for all three of these guys, and, and his his rationale was, maybe so, but now I got no worries. I can take the worst on-base percentage guy down the list, because I don't have to worry about it, and that's why he took Billy Hamilton. Because he said, I, I know Billy Hamilton's probably going to be an on-base percentage loser, but what a specialist he is for me to get, and I don't have to worry about him pulling down my overall OBP because with Votto, Chu, and Maurer, nobody can pull down your entire OBP at that point. And uh, I had Votto on my target list, you outbid me for him. I had Chu on my target list, and you outbid me for him. And and I think you got bargains on both of them, frankly, by my valuations. Uh, uh, you, you also mentioned... Um, at the draft, when, when, when we were doing the draft, that uh, you had a software package from Rotowire, and I'm curious about that whole thing. When did you make the transition from pen and ink to uh, software, and how much do you rely on the software at the draft? Well, the thing, one of the great things about Tout, and, and ironically, the auctioneer, auctioneer at Tout was Jeff Erickson of Rotowire, a good friend and somebody I greatly respect. Also, I know he's one of your alumni here on, on the podcast, and Jeff Hurston is a great guy. But the auctions at Tauter run so fast, the pace is so quick, that there's a limit to how much. And Rotowire software is, is great, and I like it. And, and if you're somebody who's not afraid to do data entry at a draft, because you, you need to be pretty quick with that type of thing, which I think I am. Maybe it's going back to the newspaper days where you had to write on a deadline, where you, you had 10 minutes to write a story that really should have taken you an hour, and you just had to somehow crank it out and, and have it done on time or, or else face the consequences. I think that's served me well in a case where, at Tout, there's almost no time to think. you get got to react. You, you have to be prepared ahead of time. So some of the advantages of Rotowire software, I don't think I could take advantage of at Tout Wars just because the pace is too fast, where somebody in, in a more traditional home league may find that they don't, you know, people are a little bit more social, a little bit more understanding. about. I'm going to be in an auction this weekend. It will probably take seven or eight hours just because that's the way it goes. I'm not going to complain about it. I'll, t- I'll take more time maybe make more rational decisions, where tout almost feels like a reaction. Where you, Again, it's like you say in sports, you practice and you get distilled experience in your practice, so you're not thinking on the field during game day. You're just reacting, and I think that's kind of how tout wars is. So I do like the Rotowire software. I think it helps you keep the player pool kind of a good sense of where that's at and where I like the projected standing only in, in the sense that it helps me stay in balance to know what I've built and what I had, don't have on my roster. It doesn't necessarily matter to me. I, I came in second, turns out, in the projections. That that may be a whole bunch of bunk. Chris Liss would tell you he'd like to be last in your projections. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. But I, I, at least I just like to think that I'm on pace for something, that I know my team is addressing certain things, or, okay, I haven't gotten a lot of steals. I may need to take that a little bit more seriously. So you know, in the Rotowire software, you can go on their notes and you, you can look at injuries and you can look at depth charts and a bunch of different things, which in a different pace of auction I would have taken advantage of. In this case, I was more just thinking player pool, show me who's available, uh, let, let me have a sense of where the rosters are at and where my team is at statistical uh, breakdown and, and where I look in the standings, you know, just, just to have a guide. It's not a mandate by any means. So, again, it really comes down to – to get the most out of it, it, it depends on the pace of your auction. And because Jeff Erickson, again, was keeping us on such a short leash, I don't know if I could take advantage of everything in it, but I do think if you're not afraid to type at, at an auction, if you're not afraid to be on the computer, which some people are, some people aren't, but if you're not afraid of that, I, I think it's actually a, a very intriguing, useful tool. I, I developed my own Excel spreadsheet uh, way back when, and it worked fine, as you say, when you can say at the end of every player, hold on, i got to type this guy in. 
and the draft ends up taking nine hours, but nobody minds because it's one of their favorite days of the year. But at Tout, uh, at one point, I think we were drafting about uh, three guys a minute, something like that, for a while. They were just flying off the board, partly because Jeff immediately goes to going once, going twice without any delay, and secondly because you don't get the advantage as you do in many home leagues where even Joey Votto starts at a dollar and works his way up to 40 in dollar increments. So you have like 15 or 20 seconds while it's climbing slowly from one to 20. Whereas at tout, as soon as somebody says Joey Votto for a dollar, somebody says 30 and right away the pressure is on to try to complete the, uh, the decision by uh, making process. So I find it really difficult to use software at the draft, I try to limit it. I'll try the RotoWire. There's a product called RotoLab that's really good. A lot of my friends use that as well. Uh, I know you have a tactical uh, preference, I'll call it, for players that are either ho-hum or have that bad reputation because of biases about certain things. You mentioned Prince Fielder. He's got the big contract and the big waistline. That sometimes makes him less popular. Is that one of the reasons you targeted him? Yeah, yeah, Prince Fielder, not that I necessarily got a great deal for him at $34. Everybody knows he's leaving from Detroit to Texas with the ballpark upgrade. There's some personal things going on in his life last year. His marriage broke up, and there's some clubhouse issues in Detroit that hopefully those being behind him will be favorable to Fielder. I mean, everybody knows who Prince Fielder is. I'm not getting a secret with him. But I think sometimes, you know, look, Fielder signed this big deal with Detroit a few years ago, and a lot of people said, ah, oh, you know. Detroit's going to regret that deal. Look at how heavy he is, and you know he's not going to age well. Prince Fielder has been the Iron Man of baseball the last few years. He plays 161, 162 games a year. And so, okay, maybe when he's 34, 35, we'll see diminishing returns set in. But I think he's a very durable player, and people don't always appreciate that. And it's funny how contracts – It's funny. you think about things in, re- in real-life baseball, and do they matter in fantasy? Like, does defense matter – in fantasy, well, it helps if it keeps you on the field. You know, Gene McCaffrey talked about Nolan Arenado in Colorado. He likes him in part because his defense will keep him on the field. But in a lot of other cases, poor defenders are allowed to hit. Uh, we, we talk about contracts, okay? Is Evan Longoria sometimes overrated in the league, which I think he might be here and there in a fantasy league because he has such a friendly contract for the Devil Rays. Remember Alex Rios a few years ago signed a really big deal, I think, with the Blue Jays an overpaid player, went to Chicago. People are like, oh, look at Alex Rios. How, why is he making all this money? I don't have to pay Alex Rios. I don't have to pay that contract. I, I don't care if, if he's overpaid in real-life baseball. I think sometimes it sounds silly, but I think in some leagues people actually consider that type of thing. And, and another profile of player that I get a lot is what I call Ibanez All-Stars. I think of Raul Ibanez, who had a, hit more home runs in his 40s than he did in his 20s. He had this nice career renaissance in the 30s. And it just seemed like every year people wouldn't fight you on him because he was 33, 34, 35. Maybe he wasn't in the greatest park. And a lot of times players on my team are just these kind of ugly, boring veterans. Like in Tower, I have Marlon Bird. Who wants Marlon Bird? And this other guy signed a contract a lot of people don't like. I did. So he's going to play him, though. He hit 280 career average. I think he'll hit 20 plus home runs. I got him for three bucks. Tory Hunter's near the end of his career. Again, there's nothing exciting. Nobody goes to the draft all gung ho to get Tory Hunter. You know, people want to get Mike Trout. People want to get Sonny Gray. You know, hipster pitcher. You know, people want to get some of these younger players who are more exciting. And I get that they have upside, and then they offer things that some of these veterans don't. But to me, I don't. I look at a guy like Marlon Bird and I say, you know, if nobody else is going to love him, I'll love him. I'll take him for three bucks. I have no problem with that. Well, I would have taken him for three bucks too. My outfield was full by that time, but I thought uh, Marlon Bird is exactly the kind of guy that you really should be looking for in a in a draft that has depth at those kind of positions. Because boy, if nothing else, he's proved he can do it. You know, it's not like it's not as romantic or exciting as drafting uh, Michael Saunders as I did because I see a lot of potential there. But it's a lot more certain that you're going to get what you're expecting, whereas uh, another type of player. Perhaps not so much. You you also have talked about the uh, idea of regression, and a lot of uh, fantasy owners don't really understand what that means. And as a result, they tend to over or undervalue guys coming off um, outlier years. Yeah, it's, it's really a big staple of mine. Where I the way I frame it is, to me, regression is the beginning of a conversation, not the end of one. Re- regression is not the answer in and of itself. And, and maybe the best example I can think of is Jose Bautista, the year he exploded. It's, I think it was 54 home runs, comes out, comes out of nowhere. 
and a lot, a lot of people the next year were trying to shoot holes in it, and they just wanted to have reasons why they weren't going to own Bautista because you know he's going to regress. I'm not going to be the sucker who who owns him in his regression year. And it turns out, yeah, he did regress some, but he still hit. I, I forget the exact number. If he hit 43 home runs the next year, he improved his batting average. Jose Bautista was a discount the next year because so many people didn't want to be that sucker. And, I, again, I, regression to me, it's the beginning of a conversation, not the end of one. I, Travis Wood I got for a buck in Tout Wars, and I know there's a lot of things about Travis Wood people don't like. His, uh, the ERA peripheral, uh, peripheral-driven ERAs don't trust that 3.11 he had last year, and, and I understand the strike at the walk rate wasn't that great and all that. But to me, I don't need him to have a 3.11 ERA to make a profit on a buck. If he can just be in the mid or high threes, which I think he can do, given these extreme fly ball pitchers. Talk about biases, right? We all want these ground ball pitchers. But, again, I go back to Gene McCaffrey. He's talked about if a pitcher is extreme in ground ball or fly ball, it's actually a good thing. It shows more control. He's driving his results more than the usual pitcher. And the fly ball pitchers usually have better whips. They have higher ERAs because those ground balls, though, are more likely to become hit. That's where the ground ball pitchers are more likely to allow higher batting averages, have higher whips were the high fly ball pitchers when Dan Heron was really good. People say, oh, yeah, all those fly balls. It wasn't that big of a deal, though, because they're settling into gloves more than not. So, you know, Travis Wood's a guy to me. I think most people don't want to be the sucker, don't want to own Travis Wood this year, and I'm not saying by any means he's going to be great. But for a buck in a mixed league, I will take Travis Wood. Again, I think the overcorrection discount, I think people are, are – I think regression is the beginning, the end of the conversation. It's really the beginning of the conversation. I love getting players like that on my team. Yeah, Bautista led the league the next year as well, I think, uh, uh, with 43 home runs. So he certainly regressed from 54, but he was still a top player. And I think your argument about Travis Wood is perfect. At a dollar, at the end, it's all upside. All he has to do is repeat what he did last year, and you're, you're going to make a huge profit off this. And if he fails... Yeah, you dump them two weeks in, and you go to the fab and and get somebody else. It's a it's like a no lose situation for you. Uh, you mentioned uh, everybody wants to get Mike Trout, everybody wants to get Miguel Cabrera. Were you surprised that they both went to one guy at uh, Tout Wars Mixed? Yeah, I may be a little bit surprised. I was Derek Van Riper, I believe, who bought both those guys. Yeah, but that's again maybe I think it speaks to why I like Mixed so much is that you have choices in roster construction. Well, I think that'd be very difficult to pull off. You have some, you, you go Miggy and, and Trout in an AL only league, and you're really going to be hamstrung. You have a bunch of single dollar players. Something I really try to avoid, by the way. I think with the single dollar players, you're going to get who the room allows you to get, not not who you really want. But in in the mixed league, it's more accessible. I didn't feel like Derek was all that tied up in the end game. I, maybe he didn't have the most flexibility, but you know he had to manage the mid game carefully. But I think it's it's something you can get away with. Potentially can get away with in a mixed league much more easily than in the mono league. So. I didn't choose to go that way, although my team is a little bit top-heavy, too. I mean, obviously, Votto, Fielder, and Chu weren't cheap, so I, I, my strategy maybe wasn't that far from Derek's. I, I wouldn't choose to go that way up front, but it is something I think is more it, – It's more you have a better chance of pulling that off in a mixed league than you ever would in a mono league. Yeah, and when you say you don't like $1 players, you mean you don't like being putting yourself in a position where – you have a one dollar maximum bid. Yes, that that that's a great distinction. I, I mean, as it is, I got Travis Wood for a buck when I still had the power to go three or five. Right. I, I hate. I, I think Ray uh, Guyfall ended up with seven or eight single dollar players, and who knows? Maybe he'll click on them. But when you get down to those single dollar players, you have you still have the burden of nomination. For one thing, you can't say anything when the whole room is bidding on players. You're now locked out of that. But then when your name comes up, if you bid on anybody crummy, you're going to get stuck with them. Anybody right. good, you're going to get trampled. So you have right. to try to find that sweet spot of who's good enough to own, but not so good that people are going to bid over them. And I guess there's a skill to that. If you're really good at negotiating that, that's fine. But I just hate being in that position where you have no leverage, especially with with a bunch of players. You know, if you can pull it off, any any strategy can work if you pick the right players. And I'll tip my cap to, to Ray if he makes it work, and, and he's a good player, so maybe he will. But I don't like being without leverage. Again, you're coming back to what will the room give me, rather than who do I really want. Well, I know there are lots of experts who say they don't mind that for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, everybody agrees that you might think a guy's a, a good $1 end game player. You might be the only guy in the room who thinks that and that you shouldn't assume that everybody else is, is in step with you on that. And second of all, I think you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of fungibility at the end of a draft in a mixed league, especially among outfielders and pitchers, where 
as I said about Travis Wood, if he fails, you drop him and you go get somebody else. There's there's plenty to choose from. But walk me through your thought process, Scott. If you find yourself out of step with the world, how do you decide whether to get back in step with the world or whether to march to your own drummer, however measured or far away? Well, this inevitably is going to get me to Scott Swain, uh, who, who, a good player, a really nice guy, a friend of mine who was in the tout mixed auction and found himself with a lot more money than everybody else and essentially ate $60 or so. I mean, he bid 61 on Brandon Beachy just as, as a fab reclaim. It's a nuance to the league and everything. But to me, I think Joe Sheehan, I've talked about in his newsletter, I, I keep mentioning all your podcast alumni here, Joe Sheehan's another yeah. one, where he doesn't mind bidding aggressively early. And maybe if he's overpaying by a buck or two or three, so be it. Because he'd rather do that early on a player he really likes than late because somebody's the last good thing in a position and, and really nothing special. And To me, if you're in an auction and you see the prices early and you think, oh, wow, these prices are crazy. What are people doing? They're overpaying on everybody. I have an expression that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. If you're in a league where people are spending like crazy, I, I think just to cover yourself, you may just want to roster one or two guys just in case. What, what if I've gauged this wrong? What if I'm going to get in the middle of this auction and I've saved all my money and there isn't enough talent to make up for it? If I'm ever in a position like that where I'm not buying anybody at all and I think the prices are crazy, I might just anchor. You know, find a guy who I like, and I don't even care if I overpay for him by a buck or two. So what? Just to make sure I don't find myself in that position where, okay, half the auction's gone by. I have two players. Everybody else has half their teams. And all of a sudden I can't find guys. The best player I can find to buy is is Matt Holiday, or, or maybe even somebody worse than that. I, I just, to me, if everybody's going crazy, if everybody's you know, flying blind, it's okay if you're the one-eyed king. And I'll tell you what, it's even worse if you find yourself in that situation and you're not the only guy who thought that way, because now you've got competition for for Matt Holiday. And I've been in leagues where those second and third tier guys will end up going for as much or more than the top-tier guys who went for the $35 or so just because you're looking at a big fat wallet and a big empty roster and you think to yourself, holy cow, if I don't get this guy, I'm going to end up with like a reserve in this spot and I really can't afford that. It's it's an interesting discussion. I want to return briefly to Scott Swainey's experience and he he ends up leaving $60 on the table, which, of course, is not uh, an optimal outcome by any measure. But have you did you get a chance to talk to him, or have you heard anything he's explained about what he was thinking to get himself in that position? Yeah, I think it, um, he Fantasy Baseball Sherpa, I believe, is his website. And he wrote uh, a very stand-up guy about what happened. He was at Foley's that night talking to people, and, and he wrote a blog on his website explaining. I think it's just a matter of he trusted his prices, and, and even as the room was seemingly working off a different reality or a different set of prices. He said, you know, I'm going to trust my numbers, damn the torpedoes. And, you know, just for me, I think that's something, I, when I think of a player price, I don't go into any auction or draft with a hardcore, this is what a guy's worth. I think of a range. I think of a tier of players sometimes. And to me, I think one of the most important things in any draft or auction is to stay flexible. And whatever your plan was ahead of time, you got to sketch that in pencil and be willing to erase something just because of the way your roster is gone, the way the room is reacting, the way opportunities are being presented to you that maybe you didn't foresee ahead of time. To me, it's about adjustment. I, I go in with a very general plan. Uh, we, we talked about earlier about those high OBP guys and how I want to get some anchors early. I mean, I'm prepared to throw that in the trash if the room's presenting me something different. And I think in the case of Scott, and again, you know, this guy is a Harvard-educated actuary. He's a very bright guy, Scott Swainey is. So I, I have much respect to him. But had I been in those shoes, I would have thought to myself, you know what, I know I have these prices, and I know it seems like the room's behaving one way, but I think maybe I need an audible here. Maybe I need to change something in flight. You can't be afraid to do that. Whatever your draft plan is, you got to put it in pencil. And I haven't had the chance to read his article at uh, FantasySherpa.com. I certainly will, but does he acknowledge that, boy, he should have done what you suggest? I mean, I I don't think he likes his outcome, Uh, that's for sure. And actually, I was in an auction with him uh, of the Blog Wars auction uh, run on Yahoo uh, a couple days later. And it did seem like he was a little bit more engaged in the early auctioning. So maybe he decided to go with a different path there. But again, it comes down to, I, I just don't, I don't like being hardline on prices. I think Scott was like that in that case. And I think he realizes that did bite him. And oddly enough, though, Larry Schechter is extremely hardline on prices, although maybe maybe the question then is, did Scott have a bad set of valuations that had uh, 
had him completely out of step with what the market was expecting, and therefore he was sticking to prices that were unrealistic given the circumstance. And as you said, that's something you have to realize is going on and say to yourself, whatever's gone on here, something about what I'm doing isn't working, and I need to, I need to punt or I need to, like you said, call an audible. And the, the other thing is, if you come into the draft saying, I'm going to stick to my prices, and my own strategy going to draft was I have, a, I have a maximum I want to spend on any one player, and I try to load up in that middle ground. That was my plan for this year. And when the players started going for way more than I thought they were worth, I had the reaction that you said, which is I've got to get at least one of them. I've got to get somebody in that top tier of guys, and uh, and if I do it at a slightly lower price, I got my guy for $27, and most of the guys that were top-tier guys were being in the mid-30s, even into the high-30s and 40s. I thought, I'm still going to retain some of that advantage in the mid-round pricing. I'll have my top guy. I ended up getting Pedroia for 27 as well. And I thought, okay, those two guys are okay. And then everybody else was in the like mid to high teens, and I was kind of the boss of the draft for a little while in that tier, not because I couldn't get outbid, but because guys who had spent really heavily probably, I thought, were looking at their wallet and saying, I don't want to spend another $20 here because I've already spent 90 Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure. It, it comes down to, for me, I know that the idea of a draft or an auction is to acquire the most value and maybe even the most upside as you can for your money. But I don't think there's anything wrong with just having some of your players who have become, again, Gene McCaffrey Foundation players, a guy who's going to give you a cornerstone or a bank of numbers. You generally have to pay sticker for those guys. If I got a dollar or two discount on Joey Votto, fine. But Joey Votto's not going to be a $50 player. I can't make that much profit on him at $38. It's just the way the market is. And I don't think there's any, If you're going to look back at your team and say, Okay, I slightly overpaid for Clayton Kershaw. I slightly overpaid for Carlos Gonzalez. I slightly overpaid for for Miggy Cabrera. I don't have a problem with that. That's much better than than slightly overpaying for Shane Victorino or somebody like that or, or somebody a lot worse than that. Right. I think there's something to be said for having a surety of the banking numbers at the top, and those guys are going to cost close to sticker price. It's hard to get a deal on them. Again, you don't have to buy a bunch of them, but if, if everything looks crazy, I'm telling you, roster somebody, get somebody on your team. Just so you're not so far out of step with everybody else, all of a sudden you're, you realize you're in quicksand and you can't dig yourself out. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, as you know, uh, at Baseball HQ Radio, we like to hit up our experts for their studs and duds, and we're almost into the season, so we've had a good look at them in spring training. Uh, not that spring training numbers matter a lot, but you're starting to get some ideas about roles and position battles and so forth. So let's start with your studs, guys you think are going to be uh, good pickings in the draft coming up, uh, if you haven't already had your draft, are going to be overperforming their expected value. Let's start with an American League hitter. Austin Jackson, somebody I love this year. Last year, five steals in April, and then he got hurt and had a really, really bad second half. And If you watched any of the playoffs, he looked lost in the ALCS. But now, back healthy, age 27 season. Jim Leland, who was a red-light manager, didn't want anybody running. He's gone. Tigers are stealing a bunch of bases in spring training under Brad Osmus. It's something actually, stolen bases are actually a, a sneaky part of spring training numbers to me. I think they may have some value, some predictive value there. And I think Austin Jackson, a lot of people got soured on him last year, but he was hurt. He had an excuse. His confidence was shot. I think he's got that confidence back this spring. He's having a huge month. And again, you, do spring training stats matter? When a, when a player's coming off an awful season, and needs to get his head back on straight, I want to see that guy hitting the ball. I don't care who it's against. I don't care you know, it's not a real game or not. I'm psyched that Austin Jackson looks great this spring. I think a discount applies. I think we're going to see his best season so far. Yeah, Austin Jackson was a guy I had on um, some rosters last year, big disappointment, and a guy I really like this year as well. How about in the National League, a hitter you think is going to overperform his expectations? And we talked about Marlon Burt earlier, one of those Abanez all-stars, so he would fit this criteria also, a guy I think is misunderstood is Dexter Fowler. Okay, this guy comes from Colorado, and people look at his road stats. You know, Colorado is just such a different outlier park where you know, obviously the, the thin air and, and, and it's a very quick infield, it's a huge outfield. What happens so often with Colorado hitters is they have horrendous road numbers because I think it's because the breaking pitches don't move as much in Colorado, and then they get in the road, their swings are all screwed up. But what happens is these guys usually leave Colorado, and this stuff normal, normalizes. 
this stuff becomes more of a traditional home road split where it's not that big of a deal. We saw that with Matt Holliday. I think a lot of people are thinking Dexter Fowler is going to be the player that he was as a road hitter in Colorado. That, okay, we can't trust this guy because his road numbers were so bad. I blame that on Coors Field. I think Dexter Fowler is a very much an underrated player because people misunderstand this dynamic of Coors Field and what happens on the road. Moving to the pitcher's mound, how about an American League pitcher you think is going to overperform his uh, dollar value expectations? You'll get few full hues for almost nothing in most leagues. I bet he's a, a free agent. A lot of people are listening right now. He's a free agent. American League East was not good to Phil Hughes. 6.56 ERA in Boston, 5.92 ERA in New York, 5.69 in Toronto, 5.66 in Baltimore. You're playing these teams more often than not. Tampa Bay was the only safe haven for Hughes. But he's always had pretty good strikeout numbers, pretty good walk numbers. He had a pedigree as a prospect. Now he's in Minnesota. Nobody wants this guy anymore. Everybody in your league has been burned by Phil Hughes once before. You can get him for a buck. You can get him as a reserve pick. You can probably get him as a free agent in a lot of leagues. I think Phil Hughes is going to be a very solid you know, mid ERA in mid, uh, ERA in the mid threes. Uh, yeah, you don't know about wins with that team. It's, you don't really want to speculate on that anyway. But there's ability here. It was ruined by the park and the division. I'm very curious to see what he does. And also, I like a lot of Cleveland pitchers this year simply because Jan Gomes is the catcher and Carlos Santana is not. I guess Santana might be the backup. He'll catch some of the time. But last year, Santana was horrendous. Gomes takes over. He's a very good defensive catcher. So I think everybody knows about Masterson. Everybody knows about Salazar. Everybody knows about Kluber. But I like those. I kind of like those guys a little bit more than even the consensus, just because Yan Gomes is the regular catcher in Cleveland. I grabbed uh, Justin Masterson at Tout. I think I overpaid for him based on what my value was, but I have a sneaking suspicion about the framing pitches ability and the defensive ability of Yan Gomes making a big difference, as you do. How about in the National League, a pitcher is going to overperform? Well, we talked about Travis Wood, a good bet for a buck. How about Alex Wood? He'll cost a little bit more than a dollar in Atlanta. He actually qualifies at both starting pitcher and relief pitcher in Yahoo League, which is a nice perk in some certain formats. Strikeout per inning last year, been unhittable this spring. He's got a rotation spot. They've had a lot of people hurt there. I think a little bit of a screen, too. Maybe maybe Tehran's you know, certainly buzzier, and they signed Santana. People are talking about the Tommy John surgeries. I think Alex Wood's flying a little bit under the radar. It looks like a dynamite breakout candidate. I also like Steve Sishek in Miami. Uh, People think, okay, the Marlins aren't very good. Do I really want players on this team? Do I want their closer? But even losing teams can support a closer for 30-plus saves. He's a very steady line of production for, I think, three or four years now. He's learned. He's certain dominant dominant against righties. He gets enough lefties out to do the job. Sishek, I think, is one of the more underrated closer bets on the board. And I've read somewhere, and I don't remember if it ever got backed up by research, but that closers on less excellent teams are actually better bets because they're going to play more close games. Yeah, you know, that's, that's something, and that's one reason why HQ is so great, is that you guys are always looking at theories like this and, and digging into them, and that's a study I would like to see of, of how how does a team become better for a closer in that position. I wish I had the answer to it, but I, I think there's something could be something to that. If if nothing else, though, I know this. People don't want to take guys on the Marlins. I think in a lot of cases, maybe all we need is Miami to be competitive as a saves-producing team. We don't need them to be great. We don't need Sischek to save 45 games. We just need to know that he can stay afloat and save 30, and I don't think that's going to be a problem at all. Yeah, I think 30 is a pretty safe baseline for any full-time closer, irrespective of what team he's on. And then the question is, are you going to get any marginal value beyond that? And that's where the question of, does a bad team generate more saves than a good one comes into play? Uh, I'm going to look into this myself, I promise. Uh, Scott, let's look at the uh, duds now, the guys that you think are going to underperform their expectations, guys you're avoiding in your drafts. Uh, Again, we'll start in the American League with a hitter. I hate to say this because I like Shane Victorino. I'm a Red Sox fan, and I really like fantasy players who are good at everything. Bill James, I think, once said that players who have a lot of skills across the board tend to be more underrated than specialists. Specialists seem to catch our eye for more. For some reason, they, they get more attention sometimes. But Shane Victorino's already hurt. He's got an oblique injury. He had a thumb procedure around December, and he admitted, he told Rob Bradford of WEI that that thumb procedure really didn't didn't help. It, it's pretty much feels the way it did before he had the procedure. So here's a guy who's already hurt. He talked about maybe giving up hitting from the left-hand side. I, I think maybe a case of he's not sure where he is in his career right now or as a hitter. I, I just 
think a bad year is coming for Victorino, in part because he's already injured, and I'm not sure that's fully being accounted for in his price this spring. And in the National League, a hitter you're going to avoid for uh, underperformance uh, scare? Every Atlanta Brave fan hates me because I, I've said I don't want Evan Gaddis. I, I know it's a great story, and, and from my newspaper background, we all root for the story, and, and it wasn't any better than Evan Gaddis last year, but he hit 211 when he was a catcher last season, 265 on-base percentage. Now he's a full-time catcher. I think it's a very mentally and physically draining position. I think it's going to be more uh, just a problem for Gaddis this year because he has to catch all the time. I even wonder how long the Braves can see him as a regular catcher if he becomes problematic there. And look, it's not, he's not really any better in left field. There's no great position for him. Freddie Freeman's going to be their first baseman. That's not an option. You might get 20 home runs with Gaz. I To me, he's almost like J.P. Aaron Sebia was in Toronto with the power. Sure, it's real, it's legitimate, but who knows what this batting average is. And I think there's a ton of downside. His numbers weren't great in the second half as well. It could have been the league adjusting, learning how to get this guy out. I think Evan Gaddis has a ton of downside. I do not want him in 2014. And again, moving to the pitching uh, situation in the American League, who's a pitcher you don't trust? A couple of guys who remind me of each other, and they've been really good pitchers for years, but C.C. Sabathia in New York and Jared Weaver in Anaheim. Both these guys have their fastballs just keep falling through the force. Sabathia used to throw 94. Last year it was down to 91.3 on the fastball. 13 years of heavy work. We talked about Phil Hughes with all those parks in the American League East that are Hard to pitch in. You know, Sabathia has to deal with four of them. His home park is, is certainly a bad one. 4.78 ERA last year. I, I know he's lost weight. He's having a pretty good camp. Actually, I think a really good camp. But he turns 34. I still see people treating him like a, a trustable pitcher. I think there's a ton of downside with him. I think a lot of those things apply to Weaver as well. You know, he could get by with an 89-90 mile-an-hour fastball. Can he get by with an 85-86 mile-an-hour fastball? I have my doubts. I don't want either of those guys anywhere near my rosters. And finally, a National League pitcher you think you're going to be avoiding? Johnny Cueto makes me nervous. And generally, I don't trust short pitchers anyway. I think they're things they have to deal with. And, and now you go on his page on Rotowire, oblique, back. He's had shoulder problems dating to the end of 2012. And he struggled with how to deal with those injuries. Sometimes pitchers change their mechanics as they're dealing with an injury as it is. Johnny Cueto, to me, a ton of downside. I'm also concerned about Rafael Soriano in Washington. He, he was a closer last year, but he was really on fumes at the end of the season doing it with mirrors. Now there's a new manager in Matt Williams. He's got nothing invested in Soriano. He inherited Soriano. I think if anything, and the, obviously the Nationals are built to win right now, probably the favorites with all the injuries Atlanta's had. I think Washington's the favorite in that division. If Soriano hits any kind of a speed bump, they have other good pitchers there. Tyler Clippard, uh, one of them most notably. I don't think Soriano's leash is long. I don't think he's going to be closing the full season in Washington. I'd be Unless you get a great price on Rafael Soriano, I would just stay away. Okay, so for our studs, Austin Jackson, Dexter Fowler, Phil Hughes, Alex Wood, and Steve Sisek. For the duds, Shane Victorino, Evan Gaddis, C.C. Sabathia, C.C. Sabathia and Jared Weaver, and Johnny Cueto and Rafael Soriano in the National League. Uh, Scott, uh, before we let you go, please tell everybody how they can find you and uh, how they can keep track of what you're up to. Sure. Uh, Yahoo Fantasy Sports, uh, again, going into my sixth season. Uh, very happy to be blogging on their Roto Arcade blog. Uh, one thing in particular I write is Closing Time, which is a look at everything that just happened in the last 24 hours of baseball that runs during the week. Catch us over there. And then on Twitter, we're, I'll tell you, if you're not on Twitter, you're missing a lot of great information. I'm not necessarily talking about myself, but there are so many great voices and, and beat writers and fantasy people on Twitter. So Scott underscore Pianowski, P-I-A-N-O-W-S-K-I, that's where I am. Uh, I'm online about 17, 18 hours a day. So if you, you want to talk <laughs> baseball, you want to ask a question, uh, stop by. We'll, we'll talk a little baseball. I'm curious, did you put the underscore in there because there was another Scott Pianowski who beat you to the with the uh, version without the underscore, or did you do it just to... Yes, there was somebody, my first tweet... There's a application where you can get your first tweet. My first tweet was, I don't know how long I'm going to be on Twitter, but there's some. The word I used was "ass clown." I'm not sure if I can say that on Baseball HQ podcast, but um, sure. Some ass clown had decided to use my name. There aren't a lot of Scott Pienowski's out there. I, I know that for a fact, and so I said, okay, if, if there's going to be a Scott Pienowski out there, it's going to be the real guy. It's going to be me. So I started it. Uh, I'm thinking maybe 2009, 2010. It was a while ago. I wasn't really sure I understood Twitter. It, it sounded like a kooky thing to me. I, I didn't think it would really make sense, but it's become something I, I've really enjoyed. I, I think, and again, for fantasy, 
nothing against long-form journalism. And, and again, you know, Baseball HQ does as good as anybody. You guys are, are getting under the hood and really breaking things down. And that stuff is incredibly valuable, and that's always going to be valuable. But in a lot of leagues where you need to have just the, the nuts and bolts, the quick the quick hitting information right away, I can't think of a better place to get it than Twitter. Yeah, I try using it from time to time, and I just find myself frustrated by the clutter of it. You know, there's so much rubbish for uh, for the amount of stuff that you're getting that that is of use. I know people have ways of of managing that, and mostly by dropping people they find to be useless. But uh, any information service whose leading practitioner is Justin Bieber, yeah, I got some issues. Scott, thanks a million for joining us today. It was a it was a great uh, session. We'll try to have you on again during the year for sure. And good luck in Tout Wars, uh, trying to finish second. Hey, if I were to come in second to you, Patrick, it'd be an honor, and it was an honor to be on this podcast. I, I know you just won an award for it, well merited, and uh, thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for mentioning it, and we'll uh, have you again soon. Uh, that's Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Down in the Cincinnati locker room with Johnny Bench. Johnny, congratulations on that terrific performance. Oh, it's been so long, and I. Gosh, I can't. I can't tell you. It's just. It's been a rough year, and I just tickled, tickled to death. I, two home runs, Johnny. Which one did you hammer the hardest? The first one. Oh, the second one. I really second. hit hard. I, you know, I was looking to drive the last guy and just to hit the ball hard somewhere. And I, I can't imagine. I, I really, really, in all my years, this is the greatest thrill I've probably ever had. You were voted the most valuable player, and John, you really deserved it. I'll tell you. Thank you. I, well. You know, when you play with these guys and they've done the job all year, and then you're able to do something just to, you know, to make up for everything you haven't done all year, it's just, it's just, you know, a great inspiration for me and a great feat. I, I'm just John, so not only are you a great athlete, but let me say that you set such a marvelous example for everyone who follows the game of baseball. As someone in the media who's had to deal with all kinds of athletes, there's no one finer than Johnny Bench. Thank you. All right, John, congratulations. And right now, our post-game show will continue in one minute. I think I'll make it a habit every year of starting uh, the regular season with that Cincinnati Reds World Series win. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. Neil Fitzgerald looks at reliability metrics in a rotisserie gaming column. Our daily matchups columns begin, and those are something you really have to check out. And Stephen Nickrand looks at spring training command leaders in his starting pitcher's buyer's guide column. Plus, we'll have all our regular analysis, playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides. Now the divisional outlooks will start shaping up and much more. It's fantasy intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our Metric Minute. And here to tell us about reliability ratings, here's analyst Ryan Bloomfield. In this week's Metric Minute, we'll talk about reliability grades for both hitters and pitchers. Reliability grades are essentially three metrics combined into one here on BaseballHQ.com that measure uh, really three things. A player's ability to stay healthy, gain regular playing time, and display consistent production over a three-year period. They give us a quick way to tell how reliable a player is with just three letters. Um, Each letter is scaled on the A to F scale, just like in school. Um, For instance, for player health, we measure the number of DL days over the past three seasons. So your A-level players have spent less than 30 days on the DL over the last three years. Your F-level players have spent over 120 days on the DL. In terms of playing time, your A players have averaged over 550 plate appearances over the past three seasons. F guys are below 250 on average. And then your B, C, and D are obviously scaled in between those, those two extremes. Um, for production, which is your third letter in the reliability grade, um, that's runs created per game for hitters and expected ERA for pitchers, so measuring how consistent those skills are. Uh, keep in mind that these grades really only reflect our confidence in a player's projection, and they don't necessarily re- necessarily reflect quality of performance. Uh, case in point here, Joe Saunders has a BAA reliability grade for 2014. Uh, nice grade does not mean we're expecting him to, to break out this year. It just means that we're expecting him to continue to pitch like Joe Saunders. Um, so you can use these reliability grades, uh, for instance, in your draft to target low-risk guys early in drafts or at your high price points for auctions. And conversely, in the end game, if you have uh, higher-risk players that you can target, you can use your reliability grades there. So next week in the Metric Minute, 
We'll move towards more in-season type metrics, and we'll discuss the pure quality start metric for pitchers. For now, for Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for the BaseballHQ.com website and talks about various BaseballHQ.com metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, our Tuesday Tout Edition for April 1st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 21 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday Tout Edition, Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski. It's the first time Scott has been on the podcast, and I sure hope we can get him back. I also want to thank our commentator from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our Metric Minute commentator. Rob Gordon was unavailable this week with the Metric Minute. We look forward to having him back. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Also, feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes show featuring League Watch News reports, Todd Zola, and Master Notes. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.